This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. What do we mean when we say move? That's right, it's time for even more definitions. Let's go. Move. To sell. Hey, Jerry, we gotta move that extra inventory we have. Move. To stir emotions. Are you one of those people who are moved to tears during a good rom-com? You are? Good, okay, me too. We can be friends. Move. To leave a place. It's the good old Midwestern goodbye. Slap both your knees and say, well, time to get a move on. Move. To take action. Let's get to it. Let's talk about being called to move. Acts 19. Open your Bibles to there if you would, please. Acts 19. While you're turning there, a couple other things to remind you about. This is Holy Week. We have a Good Friday communion service right here in this room at 6.30. We'll have a child care available for kids four and under. And we'll be looking at the story of Barabbas and trying to figure out that enigma. And then our Easter celebration services, we've got three of them, 8, 9, 30, and 11. 8, 9, 30, and 11. Again, child care for those four and under, kids four and under. And there's breakfast, so uh, stick around after the 9, come early for the 11, everything in between. And we'll uh, enjoy some, some food and fellowship together as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. At the beginning of the book of Acts, Christianity is a tiny speck on the religious landscape. 120 people in one church at the beginning of the book. 120 people in one church at the beginning of the book. Just a few years later, this sect had expanded into neighboring provinces of Judea, Galilee, Samaria, And a few years after that, it had reached into every most metropolitan areas in the Mediterranean region. The growth of the church in just 30 years, keep in mind, just 30 years elapses, is remarkable. It's stunning. The church really did go viral. Acts is here to encourage us with that news. That's what it's there for. It's there to encourage us. It's there to challenge us. When you're reading the Bible, you've got to ask two questions, not just about content, what do these sentences and paragraphs mean, but about intent. What is the author trying to get done by telling us this stuff? Well, Luke, in every respect, is trying to breed confidence in those who read the book, confidence that the Lord is growing his church. So we're going to conclude, really what it is a short 14-week study of this book. We're going to conclude that today. We're going to look at Acts chapter 19. I'm going to start in verse 11. I'll make some comments as we walk through this section of text, then we'll conclude with some application. Verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. 
You know, one of the interpretive challenges posed to us in the book of Acts is discerning what is descriptive versus what is prescriptive. What stories and verses are merely describing something that happened uniquely in Acts and are not to be duplicated today versus what happened in Acts are we meant to imitate today? The inability to discern the difference between these two leads to televangelists selling handkerchiefs they use to wipe their sweaty brows for $15 a pop, promising that this verse tells them the user, the purchaser, is going to get healed. So, Christian, it's important, especially when reading Acts, to ask this question, is this text describing something or is it prescribing something? Now, anyone familiar with the Gospels and Acts will probably see continuity with what took place with Paul and what happened with Jesus and Peter. In Luke 6, it tells us that people scratched and clawed just to be able to touch Jesus' clothes, and power came out of him and healed those who had touched him. In Acts chapter 5, we're told people brought the sick laid them on cots and mats along the street so Peter's shadow would be cast over them, and they were healed. So could it be that what's occurring here in Ephesus with Paul stands in that same genealogy, that lineage? Now, even Luke (laughs) highlights the unusual nature of what's taking place. It's not just miracles that are happening, but he uses the word extraordinary, as if a miracle wasn't extraordinary enough, he attaches the word extraordinary. Just so you know, this is, this is crazy. This will blow your mind. It was not typical. It wasn't expected. Paul never set himself up to the public as a miracle worker. Now, having said that, there was a widespread ancient belief that the bodies of particular people or whatever touched them had healing power. The fact that Paul's tent-making garments were sought after was not an odd behavior at this time. It might sound odd to us today. It's not a practice you typically see. You might have a market for an old jersey worn by your favorite athlete, but most don't believe there's healing power in that, that jersey. So what I find fascinating about this is that God seems to be graciously accommodating to human beliefs and expectations in order to encourage them to draw near and discover what his messenger was proclaiming to them. Because these extraordinary miracles did not take place in a vacuum. They took place within a particular context. Paul has been in Ephesus for two years and three months when this scene unfolds. And he's been teaching. He's been evangelizing. He's been discipling. He's got a well-established ministry of the word. So God heals people through societally acceptable means within the context of a well-established teaching ministry. Verse 13, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. So Paul's apparent success prompted imitation. Itinerant Jewish exorcists. You've got to wrap all that together in your head and keep it with you as we walk through this. 
itinerant Jewish exorcists fascinated with Paul's power and influence seemed to recognize his secret sauce, the name of Jesus. Now, I don't know why it is the case, but I found it difficult to contain my imagination as we're walking through these, these verses. I'm picturing seven misguided Jewish exorcists. So they exercise demons for a living. They hear about a new technique. They're emboldened by a new technique. At that point in time, my, my, my prep, the wheels came off, and I had the theme of Ghostbusters running through my head. <laughs> Who are you going to call? Seven sons of Sceva. <laughs> These exorcists are sons of a Jewish high priest. They're not secularists. They're not Satanists. They're not pagans. They're Jewish Outwardly religious, fascinated with what they see as Paul's formula for healing. A reasonable conclusion probably is that these seven sons of schema are, do not believe the gospel, but they do want its power. You know anybody like that? I want paradise, but confess that I'm a sinner. Uh, I don't know about that. I want a happy life, but live according to the sex ethic prescribed by Jesus and affirmed by his apostles? Uh, Not happening. Most people probably have no problem with gospel power. A lot of people have a problem with gospel doctrine. And this is where things get more comical. Verse 15, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know I've had some run-ins with him before. We all know not to mess with him. And Paul, I recognize, I've got an uncle by the name of Screwtape who got blasted by Paul. (laughs) But who are you? In running you through facial recognition, you're not known to be a threat to the demonic world in which I live. You know, there's a humor in this story. You've got career exorcists who are not familiar with, to the demonic world. You know, I know about all these other, but I don't, you, you're not really known to be a threat. That's an insult. And then the man who is host to this cheeky demon leaped on these seven men and literally it reads, he exercised dominion over them. Now, that's a line I wish I had in elementary school when we were taking on the bully. You got into a fight over recess? No, we didn't get into a fight. We just exercised dominion over the bully. (laughs) One guy beat the living daylights out of seven grown men. This is where I hope there are DVDs in heaven. There are some stories where you just want to see it. None of us, I guarantee, none of us has ever seen seven naked, beaten Jewish exorcists running down the street. 
Verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was extolled. Well, apparently, seven naked, beaten Jewish exorcists running down the street is news that spreads fast, even without social media. It didn't take long for Ephesus' 200,000 residents to catch wind of it. Became the topic of conversation over every cup of coffee and spot of tea and lunch. And the people's response is very interesting. Fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It's a pretty serious message that Luke has just conveyed to us. The people got the message. Profane the name of Jesus, and you get pummeled. To profane the name of Jesus isn't to misuse a label, it's to mistreat a person. We profane Jesus when we think about him in ways he isn't depicted in Scripture. We profane Jesus when we speak about him in ways that aren't aligned with how he has revealed himself. We profane Jesus when thoughts drift toward him no more frequently than our thoughts drift toward our weekend activities. We profane Jesus when we think little or lightly of him. David Wells was concerned about that way back in the 90s when he wrote this. He said, it is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He has lost his saliency for human life. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence, his judgments no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That is weightlessness. It is a condition we have assigned him after having nudged him out to the periphery of our secularized life. His truth is no longer welcome in our public discourse. The engine of modernity rumbles on, and he is but a speck in its path. You know, one of the misconceptions that our therapeutic world leads us to believe is that only pleasant emotional experiences lead people to honoring Christ. If you don't make them feel good, they won't follow Jesus. That, of course, is malarkey. Here, what is the prelude to revival? Fear. Fear is the prelude to revival and people magnifying Christ. We could use a little more fear of the Lord these days. Fear fell upon them all, and the name of Jesus was extolled. The word literally means magnified, made large. John Piper's got a wonderfully helpful 
way to think about this. He talks about two different kinds of magnification. There's microscoping magnification and telescoping magnification. Microscoping magnification takes a very tiny thing and makes it look bigger than it actually is. That's not the kind of magnification that's taking place here. The other kind of magnification takes a really big thing and makes it look closer to what it actually is. The people magnified Jesus. Verse 18. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Revival breaks out. It's public confession time. Those who were once bound to the magic arts are bringing their books and voluntarily burning them. Reminiscent of my teenage years when I witnessed new believers burning their old Van Halen CDs. (laughs) This they did to the tune of 50,000 pieces of silver. The historians have calculated that at $6.8 million. What is this? This is, this is a picture of repentance. This is what you want to know what repentance looks like. We use that word a lot around here. Sometimes it's a, it can be a little bit of a foggy term. This is a picture of it. It's a picture of repentance. Repentance both involves confession with the mouth and a change of direction with the life. It's visible. It's audible. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. We have seen this already. This is a recurring theme in the book of Acts. God's word wins. The power of God keeps winning. God's word keeps winning against all odds in in some unusual ways. God's word keeps winning. I came across this R.C. Sproul quote just yesterday. It says, I think the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests his power in the Bible. Everyone's looking for a program, a technique, in anything and everything, except where God has placed it, his word. Think about that. God has invested his power in his word. We don't need to make it more complicated than that. Let me mention three applications. Number one, beware of man-made attempts to manufacture the extraordinary. Beware of man-made attempts to manufacture the extraordinary. For the sons of Sceva, it was all about saying the right incantation. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. For the correct use of words, they thought that they could manufacture the extraordinary. And the severity of the beating they went through is an indicator to us just how much God loathes the idea that he will perform for us if we just say the magic words and perform the correct rituals. Folks, we don't have God on a leash. As you read through the Old Testament, I'm sure at some point you're baffled by by Israel and Judah's continuous cycles into falling into idolatry. 
over and over and over and over again. This happens. It's the main theme of the book of Judges. Why? (laughs) Well, I think one of the reasons they adopted pagan worship practices is that it was a self-serving system. Canaanite gods had needs that people could meet. And if you just meet those needs, you could get blessed for it. It was the, the, the whole system, the whole Canaanite system was the epitome of, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. And we think of that, well, how silly. I don't know that we don't drift into that. We can blindly adopt this, I'll scratch God's back if he scratches mine approach. I don't think most of the time we're aware of the incantations or practices we think are going to do that. Attending church is a simple one. That can very quickly become a you scratch my back if I scratch yours proposition. Maybe we think if we go to church, God will bless us in some way. If we go to church, maybe my sick loved one will get better. If we go to church, maybe God will give me that promotion at work. Or they'll give me a great week. If we go to church, maybe my kids will turn out right. The moment we approach our gathering in this room on Sundays is if we are scratching God's back so he'll scratch ours, we've become the sons of Sceva. God is not on a leash. Beware of man-made attempts to manufacture the extraordinary. Second, God uses the apparent triumph of evil to spark revival. God uses the apparent triumph of evil to spark revival. The Wisconsin Dells host the upside-down White House. You ever seen this? Take a look. It's the upside-down White House in the Wisconsin Dells. Our family, I'm proud to say, has walked through this thing. Let me tell you something. It was borderline nauseating. (laughs) Very disorienting. Almost dystopian. It takes a few minutes to get your bearings because you're not, just not used to seeing life look like this. It's not normal. It's not even logical. In a way, this story in Acts 19 is every bit as disorienting and dystopian. Here's what I mean by that. We don't mind, perhaps, the sons of Sceva getting their comeuppance. You know, we sniffed, we sniffed out their sleaziness and, 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 you know, they're getting the punishment that they deserve. That's understandable. But the way, the way in which we typically tell our stories, we usually have like this, this wholesome and magnetic, dressed in white protagonist as the hero, right? But the bad guys get their just due, for all intents and purposes, from another bad guy, a demon-possessed man who's never freed, at least in this story, he's never freed from his demon possession. I don't know how you see it, but I don't walk away from this story equating it to the way in which Jesus cast out demons and triumphed over the demonic world. I don't see it that way. A demoniac is the hero. When would we ever celebrate that? So as these eight men, the seven sons of Sceva, and the demon-possessed man were duking it out, I can imagine myself not knowing who to cheer for. It's like watching the Packers play the Bears. I don't know what to cheer for. (laughs) I know that was below the belt. (laughs) 
Think about this for a minute. The triumph of a demoniac sparks revival. You got that? The triumph of a demoniac sparks revival. Now, the corollary is also true. The embarrassment of, we'll call them disingenuous Christians, sparks revival. I walk away from that and I think, wow, you know what? There is, there is nothing God can't use to bring people to Jesus. This is not a typical way of drawing up how revival happens. Usually it's somebody proclaiming Jesus. People respond. Boom. Now here you've got a demoniac beating the living daylights out of whoever they are. Any and all means are at God's disposal to defend the honor of Jesus Christ. So Christian, I look at this, I say, you know, you don't have to worry about that. Are you worried about Jesus' honor being defended? You don't have to worry about that. The Father's going to take care of the Son. The Father will defend the honor of His Son, even through the triumph of one evil over another. Let that shape the way you see the world. Third and finally, God does the extraordinary. Hopefully it's obvious. We saw it right away, didn't we? Someone being healed by touching a sweaty old apron? Really? Yeah. It's not the apron. It's not Paul. God does the extraordinary. And we need this simple reminder. At the beginning of Acts, Luke tells us that this book documents all that Jesus continued to do and teach. That's how he sets it up. The whole book is about what Jesus continued to do and teach. How is that possible? Jesus isn't around for 99% of the book. How can Acts record what Jesus continued to do and teach when he's not around? Jesus has invested himself in the church. He's aligned with the church. The church is an extension of Jesus himself. It really is the body of Christ. This is Jesus' ministry. It's not about Alliance Bible Church. It's not about the Christian Missionary Alliance. This is Jesus' ministry. And this story is one of many that remind us of that. God performed miracles. He does the extraordinary through ordinary people. God does the extraordinary through ordinary people. There was a a speaker I heard, I don't remember who it was, but he was telling a story about being in Waco, Texas, and someone came up to him and said, hey, did you know that you can surf in Waco? For those of you geographically disinclined, Waco's not a coastal town. Apparently there's this massive facility that generates waves. You can go surf on the waves. Every 90 seconds there's another wave to surf. I'm sure it's spectacular. I've been in wave pools before. They're okay. But the predictability of them, eventually, is, it's sort of monotonous. Almost irritating. But have you ever been bodyboarding in the ocean? Or surfing in the ocean? 
No two waves are exactly alike, are they? I watch my kids learn to do this over the years. They've gotten pretty good at waiting for and scoping out the right wave. Sometimes they're waiting a while. And when they catch it, it's surprising and it's a thrill every time. It's a different experience in the ocean than a wave pool. Which one is God asking the church to step into? One where we manufacture the predictable? Or one where he does the extraordinary? When it comes to the expansion of the church, which is what happened here, when it comes to the expansion of the church, let's not settle for what we can comfortably create. Instead, let's set foot in another world where our impossible becomes God's extraordinary. Where we can step back and we can take a look at this and we can say, only God could have made that wave. Let's pray. Lord, we need to be lulled from our state of complacency with regard to this. It's so easy for us to fall into thinking the only thing good that happens is through the manufactured stuff of our lives and our church. Lord, we don't don't want to settle for that. We want to step out into a world where it's just not possible for us to manufacture the extraordinary. We want to step into a world where if something extraordinary is going to happen, you're going to have to show up to do it. Lord, we thank you for this journey through this book where we have seen you do this time and again. And all you're asking your people to to do and to be is to be faithful, to be available, to be obedient, to trust you. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us with that because we need you to empower us for that. It's not easy. It's not easy. But Lord, we ask you to empower us with that gift. And that we would step back and be able to say, you know what, yeah, only you could have made that wave. We pray these things for the glory of Jesus' name. Amen.